0: Why don't we stand? We want to welcome you here today and welcome those that are joining us live stream. Let's just ask God to do something powerful inside of our lives. And how many know we need to have a miracle in our world today? We really need to pray that this COVID virus would be diminished. How many are going to agree with me in prayer? Let's just believe God for some miracles and especially around our world and even in our community. You know, I'm, I'm looking forward to the day When it comes to an end, and we can all just come back to the house of the Lord and worship freely, won't that be fun? And uh, I'm going to believe for that, so let's pray. Lord, we want to thank you today for your amazing grace, mercy, and love. And Lord, we know that you are the one who is in control of all things, and we recognize that you are working in spite of our human weakness and limitations. And so, Lord, we pray today that even as we are become probably more reflective and uh, we've been more challenged, we recognize our human uh, insufficiency in light of this virus, Lord, we just pray today that you would intervene, Lord. You would intervene in our spiritual lives. You would intervene in our families. You would intervene, Father, for those that are afflicted in body right now. Many are suffering. I've even talked to people who have Uh, are experiencing COVID. I'm praying right now, Lord, that you would do miracles in their lives, Lord. You'd raise them up. I pray that this virus would diminish around our world, Father, and that there would be a new freedom, a new joy, a new release on life, Father, that we could be uh, free to serve you with all of our hearts, and we just thank you for that. I pray today, as we hear your word, Lord, may we be deeply encouraged, and may, Lord, we not lose hope in the extendedness of this uh, pandemic. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. amen, amen. You may be seated. You know, I know we're moving towards Christmas, and usually Christmas is a season that brings people together. Isn't that true? And yet, this year, that may not occur, right? We recognize that there's so many challenges. And I think uh, families are struggling with the possibility of actually uh being alone for Christmas and and not being around extended family. And I believe that that creates uh, disconcernment inside of her soul. It creates frustration. And uh, so I want to pray today. How can we find a, a measure of hope and solace and comfort in this hour we're living in? I think it's so fascinating that during the first advent, that's speaking of the first coming of Jesus to this planet It was a time filled much like our time with despair, there was loneliness, there was a sense of powerlessness, and in many ways, a time of distress that you and I can relate to at a deeper level this Christmas than ever before. You know, I want you to think back. Can you travel back with me in time to the first century? Just think of where the Jewish people were. You know, they had lived glory days under Solomon and under King David. I mean, they were uh, a vibrant nation, and then they had fallen away from God. They'd been unfaithful. God allowed them to go into exile, and yet God in his grace brought a, uh, a small remnant back to Judea, and they rebuilt. And, and yet, even in that rebuilding, there were a lot of problems, because from that point on, there always seemed to be a dominant power greater than their own nation. Yeah, there was a few years under the Hasmoneans where they were self-ruling, but generally speaking, they were under foreign domination. And then the Romans came on the scene, and they dominated that part of the world, and they, it was oppressive. They were heavily taxed. And there was miss. They, they, the Romans never really grasped what was happening for the Jewish people and their worship of one God, and that was a foreign concept to people in the first century. They were the only group of people that had that concept that there was only one God and he was exclusive and that all the other gods weren't gods. And can you imagine how that went into the Roman thinking, you know, where they believed that even their emperors were gods and there were all kinds of gods. And as long as you worship the emperor and you were part of that world of many gods, you fit in. But all of a sudden you're a group of people who don't fit in. And how many realize when you don't fit in, Persecution is the inevitable result. And so, you know, that's exactly what happened to them. And then we we see the story of, of uh, the fact that there was really no prophetic word. There was nothing living live. They knew that there was a Messiah coming, but it seemed like, you know, it had been so long since God spoke into their hearts to encourage them. And how many realize that when hope deferred happens? it's really disappointing. When, you, when you're hoping for something and it's not becoming a realization, you, you're frustrated, you're, you're longing for something to happen and you're waiting and then you, you start to wonder, you know, God made these promises to us but where are the reality of these promises? Will, they, will this time never come to an end? I think we kind of identify, will this time never come to an end, right? We're kind of questioning about this because it just seems to be protracted. It just seems to be taking forever for this virus and this pandemic to come to an end. As a matter of fact, it almost seems worse now than it was before. And I think we can all relate to that. And yet, it was in that moment that the government made a decree Don't you think there's a little irony here? You know, the Roman government decided we're going to create a registration and we're going to have everybody register in their genealogical home birthplace. And so here's Mary and Joseph. They're about ready to get married, you know. How many young couples right now, their marriage... It's, uh, plans have been totally messed up because of you know, all the restrictions. Isn't that true? Well, that happened to these guys too. As a matter of fact, there was an arranged marriage and now Joseph takes his wife and he has to travel with his wife who's now pregnant. And they're heading down to Bethlehem, which is about a red deer to Calgary journey. I mean, that's a long, long walk. That's not a drive on our, you know, high-speed freeway here. This is, you know, and you've got a, a, a young woman who's pregnant and ready to give birth at any moment. And so that must have been an uncomfortable journey. And they get to Bethlehem, and there's really no place for them. And finally, they find themselves probably in a cave, you know, just a place where they stored animals. And that's where Jesus was born. I want you to think of the loneliness. I want you to think of the lack of support Mary felt. I mean, I don't know, Joseph probably wasn't trained in midwi- midwifery, was, you know what I'm saying? This was like probably outside of his league. What am I supposed to do, you know? And uh, all of the challenges. And it was in that moment that God invaded the planet and yet, for most people, they didn't even know that anything was happening. And probably for 30 years, most people didn't realize that God had broken in on the scene because it was so obscure, so quiet. I mean, the only people I heard about it were a group of shepherds on the fields nearby, angels that appeared to them. And by the way, shepherds didn't have a credible witness in those days. They were kind of the people nobody believed in anyway, so they just wrote those guys off. And so that was the world in which Jesus was born. And so I want to just remind us... That we should never despise the day of small things. As a matter of fact, in Zechariah chapter four, verse ten, it says, "Who dares despise the day of small things? Since the seven eyes of the Lord—that's talking about God's omnipresence—range throughout the earth, will rejoice when they see the chosen capstone in the hand of Zerubbabel." This was really speaking of a time when uh, God was redoing a new work in the nation of Israel. They were rebuilding the temple that had been destroyed by Solomon. But oftentimes, you know, we have a, we have a fond memory of the past. The past is always greater than the present. How many know that's true? We, we always seem to forget the problems and we just remember the high points. And uh, I just want to point out to us that God is doing a work among us. God is working right now, even in these challenging moments. I would even argue that probably the greater work is happening right now in the struggle and difficulty of our lives, and I want to bring that out a little bit today. In Luke's account of the gospel, it's intertwined with the story of two couples experiencing God's gift of children. An elderly couple that were past years of having children, Zachariah, a priest, and his wife, Elizabeth. Elizabeth. And then we have the beautiful story of Mary and Joseph. And Luke's desire and determination is to drop another account of Jesus Christ, and he gets primarily this early insight from Mary, the mother of Jesus. That's where he's learning the story, and he's trying to set it in order. That's the first four verses of Luke chapter one. And I, I love what F.B. Meyer said. It's been truly said that mothers are the natural historians of their children's early days. You know, they're the ones that are seeing... Uh, What's going on in their life? You know, they never tire of observing them and telling others about, you know, the first step, the first words, and all those kinds of things. And Mary pondered all of these things about Jesus inside of her heart. And so she tells the story, and it's an inspiring story. And she shares how uh, out of the box the story really was. I mean, can you imagine you're a teenage girl. And every Jewish girl had the hope that she would one day get married and that the child she would bear would be the Messiah. Now, you know, when Isaiah wrote that prophecy about, you know, uh, a child being conceived by a virgin, that word virgin there is actually young maiden, okay? And so they did not think of it in terms of this, what we would call the Immaculate Conception, the fact that she was having a child that, that was really a child from God. It was this Holy Spirit that helped conceive this child in her womb. This was a miracle birth. How many know that was really outside of what she could even imagine? But what helped her believe it was, first of all, an angel came to her. And number two, the angel passed on a very important message. He said, you know your relative Elizabeth, the one who could never conceive a child, who is now way past childbearing years, she's going to have a child. How many do you think that's an amazing story? So you have two miracle births here recorded for us in Luke's chap, chapter one. And now I bring all of that out because it's important we understand that when God wants to do something, many times he chooses people from godly backgrounds. You know, not always. You know, some of us maybe didn't grow up in a godly home, but God can do a work in our lives. And so what I wanna really focus our minds on this morning is simply the idea of leaving, or sorry, living a legacy. I was going to call it leaving a legacy, but I think it's more important we live one. And if you live a legacy, you can leave a legacy. And you know, a lot of people think about when I'm gone, what I've left people. What are you really leaving people? Some people say, well, I'll leave my kids a few bucks. Well, that's really not that big of a deal. It's a lot more important to leave an amazing life. And that's what we want to look at today. What are you leaving behind you? What's your legacy in this life? What are you passing on? What is it that God is calling us to do? And so I like what Tim Clinton and Gary Sibkreis in their books, they're psychologists, they write, why do you do the things you do? And they point out about people who are nurtured in healthy backgrounds. He says, secure people feel totally responsible for who they are, for their decisions, and for their lives. Of course, they can't keep bad situations from occurring like illness, the loss of loved ones, and so forth, but they can determine how they're going to react to these events and they take full responsibility for those reactions. No, I love that because we're living in a day today where people are blaming. Isn't that true? Nobody wants responsibility today. We're always upset with someone else for what's going on. And yet, I really believe if we're going to develop in this very challenging moment of time... We've got to stop looking around and blaming what's going on and start looking at how am I going to handle and respond to this challenging moment that I'm experiencing in my life. And, you know, unfortunately, you know, not all of us maybe have grown up in a healthy environment. That's probably true of a lot of us. But I will say this that you and I can live in the past, we can allow the past to continue to define our presence, we can continue to be angry, we can continue to be unforgiving, we can continue to blame other people for where I'm at today, or we can finally stop doing that stop being a victim, take responsibility, acknowledge where you and I could grow up and change and be transformed, and, and begin to grow and let God's healing come into our life, heal the broken places of our soul, and we can become healthy, mature, vibrant, responsible, caring, compassionate, loving, other-centered people. How many think that's what the direction you'd like to move towards? rather than just sitting here in brokenness and blame and frustration and unforgiveness? How would you like to move out of that venue and move forward? And that's where we want to go in our lives. And so we're going to take a look at the life. I'm going to focus a little bit on Elizabeth primarily, but we'll look at Zacharias and Elizabeth. Um, And there's no question that their child, John, who we know that John the Baptist becomes a phenomenal person. As a matter of fact, Jesus says this about him I tell you, among those born of women, there's no one greater than John, yet the one who's least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Now, you know, I know Jesus was speaking with a bit of hyperbole, but what he was basically saying was the fact that John's mission was so dynamic. I mean, he was preparing his world for Christ. And you and I can be much like John. We can actually be preparing our world so that people can respond to who Jesus Christ is, that we can be like John. He was a herald preparing people to receive Christ in their lives. But let's take a look a little bit at the kind of legacy that Zacharias and Elizabeth left that helped form and shape, I think, a lot of what's going on in John's life. And I want to look at Uh, Three crucial elements in living a legacy. And the first one is determined by the character of the person. You know, the most important thing in our lives is who we become. You know, you can't maybe undo who you were, but we can do a lot about who we are and we can work on who we are, and we can become the person God had in mind when he designed us in eternity in his mind. God had a plan and a destiny for each one of our lives. And I believe that you know when we're born in a home, who sets the tempo and the tone of that home? Yeah, the father, the mother, the parents, right? The people who are nurturing this person. Now, you know, I could just talk here about families for a while, but I'm not going to do that. I want to take a little side turn here and make this caveat. You know, a lot of people today, they don't have biological children. I get that. But can I ask a question? If I'm a child of God, one of the mandates that I've been given by God is that I'm to make a disciple, that I'm, I'm responsible for developing other people. How many recognize that? And that you and I are called to move past ourselves and be involved in the process of making disciples. In other words, discipling people or mentoring other people or, or helping shape other people's lives through our life. That's a calling that every child of God has on this planet. And we're going to answer to God how we went about doing that. And so we can sit down very passively and say, well, yeah, that's the pastor's job or that's someone else's job. But the reality is if I'm a child of God today, I'm called by God to be, in a sense, a spiritual parent, not just a biological one. I need to be a spiritual one. And even though I have biological children, I need to be responsible for helping them become fully grown, spiritually activated, dynamic personalities. Now, can you guarantee that? No, no one can but you and I can live a life in such a way that we can help foster that in our lives. And I just put down, we can only produce what we are. How many say that's true? You can only pass on what you have. You can only give what you've got. You can only share what you've discovered in your own life. You can only model what's inside of you. That's going to eventually come out. And uh, I'm not going to suggest that Godly people don't have children who rebel because that would be negating who God is because God himself, the perfect parent, had two children in the perfect environment and they went haywire, called Adam and Eve, right? So let's not, you know, I see so many parents beating themselves up and saying, you know, I've tried so hard, Pastor, I've prayed, I've tried to do the right thing and my kid made bad choices. Hey, that happens, you know? But that doesn't mean we give up. Did God ever give up on his kids? Never. And so you and I should never give up. We should be on our knees. We should be crying out to God. We should be praying and asking God's mercy and God's grace and God's power and God's goodness to invade in our children's life. But I am suggesting that children learn and mimic their parents. How many know that's true? They're great mimics. As a matter of fact, researchers at Dartmouth Medical School in 2005. Five set up a pretend grocery store. They wanted to do an experiment. How many know these guys love doing experiments? And so they had children between the ages of two and six, 120 of them, and they wanted to know, you know, how they would respond in this make believe grocery store. So they had all the products there, how they would respond with what they would consider adult restricted products like tobacco and alcohol. Okay, so that, that was their experiment. And what they did was, They told them that there was a grown-up party about to happen and that they were to go shopping for the grown-up party, and they wanted to see what they would put in the shopping carts. Okay, (laughs) it's an interesting experiment, you know. According to the results, 28% of the children purchased cigarettes. Girls and boys whose parents smoked were nearly four times as likely to buy cigarettes. How many can see that's modeling, you know? And then beer or wine was purchased by 61% of children. Children whose dads and moms drank at least once a month were three times more likely to purchase alcohol. Isn't that interesting? You know, kids who watched you know, R-rated television programs or you know, uh, adult types of programming were five times more likely to buy alcohol than kids who were limited to children's programmings. What, what are they showing us? They're basically saying that kids are literally... Uh, embracing what they're experiencing. Craig Anderson, uh, a researcher from Iowa State, said kids are basically, basically little learning machines. Whatever the content is in front of them, they're going to pick it up. So the question we have to ask ourselves is what are we modeling to people? What are people seeing from our lives? If people are seeing, you know, generosity, if they're seeing forgiveness, if they're seeing us praying, if they see us reading our Bibles, if they see us caring for other people, how many know people pick up on those cues and begin to emulate that behavior? You know, people that are brand-new Christians, they're trying to figure out what does it mean to be a Christian? Well, who's modeling this for them? Hopefully older Christians, you know. But if we're walking around grumpy and complaining, guess what's going to happen? They're going to learn how to be grumpy and complainers. And uh, But if you see people walking around in the midst of challenging circumstances who are not complaining, who are not angry, who are not frustrated, who are not rebelling, but who are walking around rejoicing and praising God and praying and looking to God for the answers, how many know people pick up on those cues? And that's what we're talking about, learning to be the right kind of people. So we need to be a godly example for other people. Notice it says here in Luke chapter 1, verse 6, both of them, this is Zachariah and Elizabeth, were righteous in the sight of God. I love that expression, righteous. They were in a right relationship with God. They observed all of God's commands and regulations blamelessly. Now, F.B. Meyer in his book about John says, the phrases are evidently selected with care. Many are righteous before men, but they were righteous before God. In other words, there's a lot of people outwardly look good, but inwardly aren't so good. But these people, God could see they were clean through. I mean, these guys, what you saw is what you got. They were, it was coming from within them, and it was being portrayed in their lives. He goes on to say, uh, "'Their daily life and walk were regulated "'by careful observance of the ordinance of the, "'of the ceremonial part of the law, "'as well as the commandments of the moral law.'" It is evident from the apt and plentiful quotation from Scripture, which the song of Zacharias, a little later on in chapter 1, is replete, that the Scriptures were deeply pondered and reverenced in that highland home. And we have the angel's testimony to the prayers that ascended day and night. In all these things, they were blameless, not faultless, as judged by God's infinite standard, but blameless because they lived up to the fullest limit of their knowledge of the will of God. And what does it mean to be blameless? It doesn't mean we never sin. It just means that we're doing what God is showing us to do to the best of our abilities. Right? That's all we can ask of people. Another way of describing a blameless life is a person who lives with moral ethics, It's reflected in their behavior. We're speaking of someone with moral integrity. A blameless person is the one who takes the high road. It doesn't mean that blameless people never sin, but what it means is that sin is not the condition of their everyday living. It's not the essence of their lives. And it's not a self centered, it's not a sin filled life. Rather, it's a life living to please one person, and that's God Himself. And how many know that sometimes when you please God, you make some other people unhappy? But in the long run, you can live with yourself. You know, I've discovered a long time ago, it's impossible to please everybody. Anybody figure that out yet? You know, good luck. If you're successful at it, that tells me you must be doing a lot of compromising. Okay, secondly, the second element in living a legacy is determined by our response to crisis in life. This is really good, because I think we're right there right now. And I think what's happening in our time right now is, is really a, a, a reality check. It's really showing you and I the condition of our lives. So in other words, how do we handle life's challenges, crisis, and conflicts? Do they define us or do they refine us? In other words, do the pressures from outside tend to shape us and we behave because the, the circumstances are squeezing us and we're, not, we're, we're being you know, developed by them? Or are we allowing the pressures from the outside to refine us and it's actually stripping off stuff in our lives that shouldn't be there anyways. How do we handle things like those who don't know the Lord? Are we, are we being transformed by God's Word? How do we respond to the problems of life is really a test of our character? And again, I want to quote Clinton and uh, uh, sibsy because they, they suggest that secure and healthy people handle uh, difficulties in the right way. It says, when, when they're When healthy people are beset by problems not of their own making, they usually assess the situation honestly and relatively dispassionately. In other words, they don't lose their cool. (laughs) And they set about to change their circumstance. In other words, if there's something I need to change or there's something that can be changed, I'm going to go about doing that. And then they engage in active problem solving. And when at first they don't succeed, they keep trying to solve the problem longer than insecure people do. They don't give up. That's what they're saying. And if they decide that they can improve things, they decide to cope with it. In other words, they make an adjustment. They say, okay, if this is the way it is, I'm going to just flow with it. I'm going to accept I can't change things. You know, there's a prayer called the serenity prayer. You know, knowing the things you can change, knowing the things you cannot change, and knowing the difference, knowing when when to stop trying to change something you cannot change. And I'll, I'll give you some good classic examples. You know, it's not our job to change other people. That's not my job. I don't feel that pressure. It's not my job to change my wife, Patty. It's not my job to change you as a congregation. My job is just God's messenger. I want to be faithful. I have to, you know, my job is to love you and accept you the way God does. That's the goal. You know, God does the changing with our cooperation. How's that? You know, God needs cooperative people in order for us to be changed. Everybody see that? You got to cooperate. You know, you, you can't just say, well, God can change anything. Well, you know what he doesn't change is a resistant heart. That's what I've noticed. We can block God right out. And he, he gives us that freedom to do that. But if we're cooperative, things can happen. They go on to say, generally secure people concern themselves with how they interpret their suffering. They find meaning in their pain. That's a very powerful statement. So that, that usually leads to the next point that I want to get across is simply, what is God teaching me in my crisis? What am I learning right now? Am I learning anything, or am, am I just upset? You know, am I just frustrated with somebody? I just got to you know, scream or blame somebody or upset about something. What's God trying to teach me in all of this? What can I learn from this experience? Well, I'm learning maybe I'm not as patient as I thought I was. That could be something I'm learning, right? Come on, we can learn a lot of things. I'm learning that maybe I have I'm 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 stronger than I thought I was. I'm persevering through this thing. I'm finding ways of of celebrating life in spite of the challenges. I'm finding ways of helping other people. You know, I'm 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 giving more effort to that than I ever have before. I'm working harder at staying in contact with people. I don't know what you're doing. You know, uh, we can ask the question: What am I learning from this experience? How can I help others from my own painful experiences? And I love what Paul tells us in his letter to the Corinthians, and this is the second letter, which is probably the most autobiographical letter that he writes. And he begins by praising God. I love this. You know, if you want to know what a biblical response to problems is, it's praising God. Does everybody know that? That's the right response. How many go, that's my natural response, Pastor. As soon as I hit a crisis, I just (laughs) lift my hands in the air. Thank you, Lord. I just start praising God for all I'm worth. How many go, that's not a normal, natural response to most human beings? How many know you got to kind of develop that and cultivate that in your life, right? You know, Job loses his 10 kids and he gets up... Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You're going, no, I'd be kicking the dog or something. You know, it's just, I'm just not with the program. Well, that's what I have to learn. I'm learning through the crisis where I'm really at and what I need to learn how to do. Listen to how Paul starts out. He says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort. Now, how can he say this? Because Paul has a little maturity. And listen to his experience. He says in verse four, who comforts us in all our troubles. Hey, do you have any troubles today? What's God say he will do? He will comfort us in all our troubles. I love that. So that we can comfort those. Now, here's the reason why God comforts us. So that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. What's what's he teaching us? That God allows you and I to experience things in order for you and I to help other people who are now experiencing those things so that we can help them through them. How many think that's beautiful? That he is trying to make you and I a helper to other people. It's not just about us. Sometimes we go through things. I remember one time I went through something, I can't even remember so long ago. And you know, it made no sense to me. You ever have those experiences? How many of you ever had experience in life? Makes no sense to you. This is making no sense to me whatsoever. And you know, like afterwards it didn't make sense. I mean, it didn't make, it never made sense to me. I never could understand it. And then one day I'm in my office, somebody comes to see me, and I'm listening to the situation. And what happened 10 years previously kicks into my mind. It's the Spirit of God. And I go, oh, now I know why I went through that. And it was exactly what this person needed to hear. It was almost like God said, I did this for a reason, and here's the reason why, right in front of you. And I went, whoa, this is amazing, God. It just blew me away. You know. Then verse 6 says, if we are distressed, if we are distressed. Anybody here distressed right now? If we are distressed, it is for? your comfort. In other words, my distress is for your comfort. Your distress is for someone else's comfort. That's another way of looking at my distress. It's not just about me. It's for someone else's comfort. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance. Does anybody know that we have to learn patient endurance? You know, a number of years ago, I was so discouraged about you know where the church was at and some of the things that were happening I was thinking, God, am I the problem here? You know, I was just so frustrated. And you know what God kind of put into my spirit. He goes, no, you're not the problem right now. I'm teaching you something. I go, what are you teaching me? Patient endurance. How many know you have to go through frustrating things to learn patient endurance? See, all of us go, Lord, help me to grow spiritually. Isn't that? Lord, I wanna be more like you. It does not sound spiritual. Oh, Lord, I just wanna be like you. Yeah, but you got a long ways because you're not patient and you don't know how to endure. I'll help you though. I'll teach you patient endurance. Aren't you glad you signed up for God's school of character development and included patient endurance in it? And so to get that lesson, you have to go through momentary distresses to learn patient endurance. And then he says, of the same sufferings we suffered, We were under great pressure, Paul says, far beyond our ability to endure. That's a very powerful statement. You know, a lot of times we go, I can't handle this. How many here can honestly say, I'm struggling a little bit, Pastor. I'm having a hard time handling this. Paul says, listen, we were under such great pressure. It was beyond our ability to endure so that we even despaired of life itself. What's he saying? He didn't even want to live. Have you ever had moments in your life where you go, life isn't worth living? You know, I'm, I'm really concerned about some of the things we're instituting in our culture today because, you know, when we make, you know, euthanasia accessible to people, there are moments in life where we all hit a low point where we go, life isn't worth living, just unplug the machine or just undo this, I don't want to go on. And yet, those moments, as we're about to see, are what God wants to sometimes use in our lives to move us. There's a reason for it. There's a reason for this verse. Listen to what it says in the next part of the verse. Indeed, we felt We had received the sentence of death, but this happened. There's a reason for it, he says, that we might not rely on ourselves. You see, one of the greatest problems in our culture today is self-reliance. Didn't we know that's true? We're relying on ourselves. Actually, you know what's happening right now in COVID? We're coming to the deep realization we're bankrupt. We can't make it. But we're we're learning to move from self-reliance to reliance on God. Who does what? God is able to what? Raise the dead. God is able to take the most difficult circumstances in our life and lift us right out of those situations. Hallelujah. Now, if you and I can't get a hold of that, that's good news, folks. God has resurrection power at work in the heart of every believer. So you and I can turn away from our own focus on ourselves, our problems, our despair, the difficulties, the challenges, and we can look up to God and say, God, you can lift us beyond the situation. And then he goes on to say, he has delivered us past tense from such a deadly peril. And he will deliver us again. And on him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us. And I wrote in my little journal, God is a deliverer. And I see it over and over again in the scriptures. And I see it over and over again in my own personal experiences. And I see it through the life of the church. And I see it in the life of other believers. And I wanna declare to you today that God will deliver us from COVID. He will do that, folks. So don't come unglued yet. As you help us by your prayers, what is he saying? What should we be doing while we're waiting? Praying, 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 praying. Then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favor granted us in answer to the prayers of many. Dealing with life's disappointments. Well, here's Elizabeth. Talk about disappointment in life. She could not have children. The fact that Luke had mentioned her and Zechariah, blameless character, removed any hint that their child estate was due to any sin on their part. You know, a lot of times we judge people and we judge them outwardly. We have no idea what's going on, on the inside. That's why the Bible tells us, you know, be careful how you judge. Yeah, don't be quick to do that. Many times what appears to be a great difficulty is in reality God's opportunity. Look, they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive. And they were both, how old? Very old. This is like an Abraham-Sarah story, right? This is like past having children. And we know from the biblical text that this was a source of great sorrow and anguish both for Elizabeth and her husband Zachariah. They had prayed, they had prayed, they had prayed. If you were living in that time and you were a Jewish person, the greatest sense of legacy was having children and that's how you left your legacy was through your children. And they felt that very deeply. Now they were not having any children and they had prayed and prayed and prayed. And I wanna just say something to you. You know, God's timetable is different than ours. Anybody figured that out yet? Yeah, and I want to say something else that's even more exciting because it just happened to be this particular day the lot was picked and Zechariah was the guy to go in and burn incense in the holy place, not the holiest of holy. Only the high priest could go there once a year, but he got to go in the holy place and burn incense. And while he's doing this, an angel shows up, Whew. and the angel says to him, "Do not be afraid, Zechariah." That's usually the first line out of an angel's mouth because everyone's terrified after seeing an angel. You know, supernatural stuff spook us a little bit. And he says, your prayer has been heard. Woo! What prayer? Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you're to call him John. And I I put down in my Bible, prayers never have a deadline. They never have a shelf life. They're continually living forever. I want you to know every prayer that you've ever prayed has continued to ascend before Almighty God. And I wanted you to think about God a little differently. See, you and I are stuck in time, right? So here's a beginning, here's a present, here's the future. God's outside of time. So for him, the beginning of the world and the end of the age, he's he's looking at it all at one time. He's outside of the realm of time. Is that an amazing, just think about that thought for a minute. It's a little mind-boggling. So you prayed something 20 years ago. As far as God's concerned, it's just like you're still praying it. And all of those prayers are lifted up into the heavens. Matter of fact, the book of Revelation, you read about it, the prayers are put inside of an incense, then God pours it out on the earth. You know, it's really amazing. And I want, I want you to know prayers are ever alive. And he said, I've heard your prayer. You're going to have a son. Zachariah goes, really? He had a hard time with this. Matter of fact, he goes, you know, you're going to have to show me. He, he, had, he had some doubts. We'll just put it, even though an angel's telling him this, he's got some real doubts. And... He asked for a sign. How many know a sign is usually a sign of unbelief? And he said, yeah, you'll have one. You won't be able to talk when you leave the, the, the temple. <laughs> That's your sign. And uh, he comes out, and he can't say a word. You know, he, he's, he, he's just speechless, literally speechless. And he must be waving his hands, and they, they figured something happened on the inside there. And uh, he knows now he's going to have a son, and he's going to call him John. And so Elizabeth, it says here, when the time of his service was completed, he returned home after his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord had done this to me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. And that was a whole cultural thing. Let me just move on here. Um, I, I, I think, you know, why does God let difficulties come into our lives? It's always a great question. Why does God let suffering happen, you know? People sometimes think, well, suffering doesn't come from God. God allows suffering. There's no question about it. Suffering either leads you and I to anger or bitterness or else it tenderizes us and we become a a better person through that experience. And it's up to us how we're going to handle that challenge in our lives. You know, we learn obedience by the things we suffer. Jesus had to learn it that way. But let me move on to the third element here. And it's determined by our concerns. This is how you live a legacy. Why I'm calling it living a legacy, because you can only pass on what you are. You see, first of all, it's determined by who we are, our character. Nextly, it's, re- it's determined by our responses to crisis. And the last time, it's determined by our concerns. What are we concerned about? What are we living for? What's the meaning of life? I think God is actually helping people get a hold of that question right now. What do you think? You know, why are, why are we here? What's the whole purpose? Uh, So what do the children or the people we're mentoring or the people we're discipling observe about what is a priority in our lives? Do people figure that out by looking at my life, looking at your life? Do they see that we're primarily concerned about only ourselves or are we concerned about others? You know, Is our focus upward and outward or is our focus absorbed by our inward self-focus and shaped by the outward pressures and we just succumb to self-pity? You know, a lot of people are living in pity right now. And it grieves my heart to see that. You know, I want God to bring healing into that broken place. And then we have to ask ourselves the question, who are we trying to please? Is it ourselves? Is it other people? Or is it ultimately, I'm, I'm living to please God. That's my goal, to please God. That's my heart cry. I think our difficult experiences can be a source of blessings to others. We've already alluded to that. Now, watch what happens in the story. The angel comes to Mary now, and what does he tell her? He's, she's going to have this child. She goes, well, how's this going to happen? I mean, I've never known a man. Yeah, she's technically she's you know engaged to Joseph, which is as binding as marriage in the Jewish economy. But there's been no con, you know no uh, con, yeah, consummation of the relationship. Thank you, Beryl. That word slipped my mind. There's no consummation, and so. All of a sudden, she goes, how's this going to happen? He says, that which, the Holy Spirit's going to overshadow you, and that which is within your womb is going to be, really, God himself is going to come and live inside of you. He's going to be born as a man into this world. Wow, what a powerful miracle, and uh, it's a miracle birth, and then he says this, even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month for no word from God will ever fail. I love that. What God promises, he's able to perform. And we can take comfort and hope from God's word in life's most distressing situations because the focus now becomes on something that's enduring, the word of God. Can I say something? Everything you see in life, all the material things, they're all going to pass away. The only thing that has eternity written on it is the Word of God. The Word of God is eternal. So if you're building your life on that which is eternal, you're fine. But if you're building your whole life on that which is passing away, when you hit a crisis like COVID or some other major problem like war or whatever it is, you're in trouble because you've built your whole life on that which is passing away. It's going to disappear in front of your eyes. So what happens? Mary goes off to see Elizabeth. Can you imagine how encouraging it was that these two women got together and you know, Mary knew she, you know, she was overjoyed by this honor, but she also recognized that she was going to suffer shame. Isn't it amazing? Many times the people God honors the most suffer shame in the eyes of people. It works that way. And here's what happens: when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she starts prophesying. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you bear. Why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord? This is a very powerful statement should come to me. Listen to what she's saying, the mother of my Lord. The mother of God, basically the Yahweh. Powerful statement. Elizabeth had a divine revelation of the nature of Mary's condition and uniqueness of the child that she was carrying. She received a divine impartation and knowledge that this child of Mary's was the Messiah. How many know joy often follows times of sorrow in our lives? I love the psalmist that says weeping endures for a night but joy comes in the morning. I'm gonna encourage us right now. There's a great season of joy ahead for us. Boy, you guys really sound enthusiastic. <laughs> I'm really enthusiastic about this pastor. I'm so overwhelmed by distress, I can't even think about the joy that's coming before me. Can, I just, can you imagine when this is all over, the sense of relief people are going to feel, the sense of joy, the sense of excitement? See, what you used to think was a boring, ordinary life, you say, I'll take that any day right now. <laughs> You'll have a new joy just in the ordinary, will you not? Wow, it'll be so good, you know? God is truly interested in people. He's desirous that we would develop healthy, godly lives. Let me just close with this. I'm going to give you four thoughts. Wow, point number one disappeared. Oh, there it is. Okay, here's four things I want you to consider this week. Because you know, sometimes we hear a sermon and go, oh, yeah, that was okay, that was good, whatever. And then we forget all about it. Here's the four things I want you to remember this week and I want you to consider. In light of what I've been sharing this morning, number one, get your phones out, take a picture of the screen. That'll help you remember this. What? No screen? <laughs> we never had the screen the whole time? Oh my goodness. Oh, you had faith. Awesome. We got to fix that, guys. Turn around, take a shot. There's one on the back wall there. There, I'm helping you out. Okay, so one, what character deficiencies do we need God's help in overcoming in order to create a godly life and God relationship, godly relationships with other. How many say, there's probably some things that need to change inside of me so that I can get less self-focused and more God-oriented, okay? That's question number one. I want you to think about that this week. I'm giving you a homework assignment. You know, you think a sermon's just to be inspiring. No, I'm giving you something to work on. Number two, how has crisis and difficulty in the past shaped our lives rather than refined us? How has these things made us worse rather than allowed us to be changed? And how are we going to handle our present crisis? Or God's, Is it going to be God's way of handling this crisis or our way of handling this crisis? Okay. Number three, what promises do we need to stand upon in God's word in order for us to be transformed rather than conformed by our present challenges and difficulties? There's, there's passages of scriptures. You and I need to stand on and say, okay, this is eternal. I'm going to stand on this. You know, I, I kind of gave you one. You know, here's, I love this one. You know, weeping may endure for a night. That's a psalm. I think it's uh, Psalm 126, verse 5. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Man, hang on to that. Just say, Lord, I'm looking forward to that day of joy. And so I'm not going to you know, fret about the, the, the evening weeping here. Okay, number four. Who are the people we're presently concerned about and what are we doing to demonstrate that concern? How many think that's kind of important? In other words, what am I doing about this? How am I using this time, instead of focusing on my problems, do you know there's people around you that have far more significant issues? What can I do to alleviate their suffering and pain and bless them? And I think if you're busy doing that, it alleviates a lot of your own frustration. I want to close with a story. This is so beautiful. Our children's pastor had one of the young children in our church, young man, I think he's 10 or 11, and uh, they were singing uh, that beautiful chorus that we've just started singing recently, The Blessing, remember that chorus? And in that chorus, this this little guy has this epiphany. I think it's so amazing. He says, it really just makes you think what I what I do will influence my kids. He's 10 years old right now. He's thinking, what I do will influence my kids and their kids. So it's really important that I'm a Christian and what I say, because if I'm not a Christian, then it means that the people following me will not be Christians, probably. And I had never thought of that before. You know, and then and then he says this: if you become a Christian, thousands of generations too can become Christians. I mean, this this is amazing to me. I'm going, wow, he's getting it. How important is your life? I'm going to tell you right now, a lot of people are depending on you, and you don't even realize it. You know, I think sometimes the great sin in the church isn't so much the things we're doing wrong. It's the things we don't do right. It's called the sins of omission. Lord, help me to make sure I'm doing the things you're asking me to do. Amen? Who am I mentoring? Who am I caring for? Who am I discipling? Who am I sharing my life? Who am I praying for? Who am I showing concern for? Who am I developing? That's the questions we should be asking ourselves. And then we should be looking at our lives and saying, how is my life, in a sense, a model of what I want them to emulate? In other words, like Paul said, be followers of Christ. Be followers of me, says, even though I am of Christ. You know, follow my example as I'm following Christ's example. Isn't that an amazing statement to make? Can you make that statement? If you just follow me, you'll be following Christ because I'm following Him. Isn't that a beautiful thought? Are you following? Let's stand. Let's pray. How many here say I need a little help right now in my present crisis? anybody else need a little help right now? And you're saying, God, would you help me to be the person you want me to be in this moment so I can let my little light shine and be a blessing to people around me? Lord, I just pray that prayer for each one of us, that you would do such a profound work of encouraging us, comforting us, strengthening us, developing us, refining us, so that, Lord, through our lives, We will model the life of Christ in a time of distress so that others can see Jesus in this hour where there's helplessness and hopelessness. And we thank you for that, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you as you leave.